I'm Chuck Norris, and I approve this game. Between the time when gamers play with miniatures and chainmail, and the rise of the Wizards of the Coast, there was an age of advanced role-playing undreamed of. And onto the Skygas, destined to bear the jeweled crown of TSR upon a troubled brow. It was given to teach us all how to roll for initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! You're listening to the Roll for Initiative podcast. This is volume number three, issue number 132. DM Vince sitting here with DM Matt. Hello, everyone. DM Nick. Hello, folks. And DM Chad. Yo! We're back for another issue of this wonderful podcast about Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 1st Edition. Well, it's been, what, two weeks since we did a show? Right, Matt? Yeah, two weeks since we did a show, but yet we still had a show up, thanks to the wonderful interview uh, DM Chad did. Uh, So if you haven't listened to that, really do. It's actually a really interesting behind-the-scenes of putting a con together. Yeah, definitely worth listening to. Take a download, share it with your friends, make Chad's ego blow up. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) It's already blown up. Yeah, make a big mess. Oh, the humanity. (laughs) And uh, Chad's working on his uh, Dead Game Society podcast as we speak, so hopefully we'll be hearing good news from that soon. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, We've been promising it for a couple of years now, but we've finally gotten around to doing it. Worked out the kinks. Negotiations (laughs) were made. Well, I don't know if we worked out all the kinks, but I tell you what, being on this show has, has taught me quite a bit to make that show. <laughs> yes, we're such a shining example of a podcast, aren't we? We are. We are, definitely. Hey, we spawned sister podcast after sister podcast based on this one podcast. So. Yes. Good point. There you go. Good point. So, yeah, so Chad uh, negotiated contracts with his two partners in Dead Game Society. They came to agreements, and uh, certain dates, uh, what is it, Michael's going to be, I have a Legends contract, and uh, what's Colin have? He has an uh, ambassador. Con- no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so he'll, his uh, podcast will be another spawn of ours. So well, no, we're not gonna- podcast. They're going to be more on the lines of covering all the games that are out of print. So Right, right. The Dead Game Society right. podcast will focus on the games that are out of print and, you know, old school role play as a whole. But also we'll be bringing up uh, episodes dealing with, you know, centered each episode around one game that's out of print, perhaps, or areas of a game that's out of print. So we might talk about Stormbringer one day, or we might talk about Boot Hill on another episode. I was just thinking Boot Hill. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm always thinking about Blue Hill. That's a great game. <laughs> I had my hands on a copy of that too. Oh, I got a third edition of it that I love, uh, which had the most limited run, and in my opinion, it's the best one yet. I mean, it's really nice. Cool. All right, so we have no stars. So if you'd like to leave a star, like and get your name read on the podcast, uh, go over to iTunes and look us up. Roll for initiative podcast and leave your feedback, and Nick will read it for you. Right, Nick? Nick? <laughs> sure, Nick? why not? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow, we lost Nick. 
Uh, oh, so, I'm here. Yeah, all right. That's fine. Glad you're here. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. We're, I've been gaming. Anyone else been... Any exciting gaming stories to anybody? No. Yeah. I was digging... Not a one. Okay. Yeah, I've had very little time to game, actually. In fact, if anybody in my online game is listening, I need to apologize for having not done much with that game the last two weeks. But I've uh, been kind of working on editing that uh, DGS podcast as well as a lot of stuff at work. <laughs> so Yeah. yeah. I was digging through my closet and found a stash of Dungeon and Dragon magazines I didn't realize I actually had. So that was a pleasant Score. surprise. Score. Yep. I'm like, Sweet. there's like 20 issues, and I'm like... I didn't even re- – I don't remember buying these. I don't know where they came from, but they were stashed in one of my magazine boxes. I'm like, okay, you need to go with your proper home. <laughs> Christmas comes early to Matt's place. Yes. Well, that was like Jason last year. He bought like a ton of stuff at Gen Con 2010, and he found it like last summer in his closet when he was moving. He's like, oh, my God, I found like 50 issues of Dragon Magazine that I must have bought from Gen Con 2000. It was still in the bag, too. Yeah. Some of these are still in their original bags where I think I bought them at a half-price books. Oh, I found my uh, Shadowrun second edition uh, core books buried in my boxes in the closet. Nice. So I might be getting back into that. Some nice Shadowrun goodness. I miss Shadowrun. Yeah. Shadowrun was a fun game. Yeah. Yeah. Can we do that game, Chad? Let me know. I wanna I wanna listen. Yeah, definitely. And uh eh, let's head over some stage advice. Sage advice. Sage advice. We have uh some emails and we have a voicemail this week. If you'd like to leave a voicemail, you can dial five seven oh eight six five forty two ten the hotline. Hotline, all right. Where nobody is standing by because this is the holiday season. You'll just keep ringing and ringing. No. <laughs> what? <laughs> Fortunately, kobolds do not celebrate Thanksgiving. So we're good. But they have demanded, they have formed a union, and they've decided not to work this holiday season. So, oh. Damn them. Fortunately, since it's the low man in the totem pole, Chad, you have to work the phones this holiday. <laughs> hey, that's what I'm here for. I'm going to send in the Union breaking bugbears. So. Anyway, we have one voicemail, and I'll play that right now for us. Hey, guys. This is DM Josh, and I'm calling in to ask what you guys think about save-or-die poisons. Recently, in a game of AD&D that I've been running, my group encountered a group of spiders, large spiders, that had, were equipped with the save-or-die poison. However, in re-examining this, I was thinking, in order to add to the realism of the game, I would have my players quickly be able to react to this poison. In essence, maybe chop the limb off where the bite occurred. I just wanted to know what you guys thought about this, and if you guys have ever included something like this in one of your games. I appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Well, didn't they do that on The Walking Dead when they got bit? They chop off the limb and <laughs> it wouldn't get infected? Yeah, they yeah, did that, they yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I've never actually done that in a game. Have anyone else? No. Um, the way I would usually handle, like, save or die poisons if they fail, just because they fail the roll doesn't mean they have to die on the spot. You could make this a slow, torturous death that... Uh, and that way, maybe they can come up with something creative to stop them from dying. It doesn't have to be like the insta-death poison. 
Oh, well, you know, the book says. Yes. Yeah, I actually totally agree with that, Matt. Uh, I think that, you know, save or die means, you know, you don't save, you die. But I think there's room for interpretation in that where you could say, sure, that means it's lethal. But it doesn't mean it's lethal right now. Right. You could right. you could you could roll, say, roll a random D6 and say, OK, in, you know, maybe a D4. You have four turns before you're dead. Right. What do you do? Don't tell them. Mm-hmm. You let them think. Right. You or let... you, right. And then, okay, you're right, actually. Right. Uh, as a GM or DM, you basically keep it in your head how long they have. Yeah. And if they don't come up with a solution in the amount of time that you have either decided on or – and I would say if you're going to – I'd let a high constitution uh, play a factor in this, too. But, uh, yeah, definitely, you know, he looks bad. Well, is he dead? Well, he doesn't look like he's dead, you know, and, and then let him do something, you know, and, and kind of the tie in. He's mostly our... dead. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and there are things you could do, you know. I mean, if you're if you're a uh, druid or a cleric, you know, a slow poison might delay this even longer. I mean, death mm-hmm. would be the ultimate outcome if nothing happened because he saved a fail. Uh, he failed to save. But... If you're a magic user, hey, how about feign death? Because that uh-huh. will act much like a slow poison. Yeah. True. 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 Or right. temporal stasis. If you're that high enough to cast a spell. Yeah. If you can do that one. Exactly. And this is, you know, and this gets into what meat of what we're going to talk about later. But, yeah, there's, there's creative ways you can, you can stave off that, that bad result on your save, I think. Right. And plus also when they make that save roll, you don't have to tell them it's save versus death. They just know maybe they, they failed a roll against poison, even though mm-hmm. – so that way they're not sure, am I actually going to die or is this just like a really bad poison and their state just keeps getting worse and right. worse. What if the guy goes right into shock? Yeah. Now – for all intents and purposes, he he is not able to do anything with this character. You know, you could say uh, to the rest of them, you see your companion collapse to the ground and start going into convulsions. Spittle is coming out of the side of his mouth and his eyes have rolled up. Uh, what are you doing? Yeah. I stomp Actually, on the roll. No, sorry. Right. Yeah. And if you want to use a guideline, I'm looking in the DMG page uh, 20 under poison types. It says the poisons of monsters, regardless of the its pluses or minuses of the victim's saving throw, is an all-or-nothing affair. That is, either they do, nor dam- do, do no damage, or they kill the victim within a minute or so. So that minute or so, that's, that's what, ten turns, right? Yeah, yeah a minute. Six well, turns. A minute. Yeah, yes. a, a round is one minute, I believe, and a turn is ten, ten. minutes, right. I believe. Yeah. So so one so maybe a couple of rounds, you know, mm-hmm. or he, like you said, if they have a high high enough constitution, maybe above sixteen, maybe they get an extra round for every you know uh, point above you know fifteen or sixteen or something like that. So yeah, I can yeah, those are that. some ideas to kind of, you can use. So yeah, mm-hmm. I could see doing that. I can't see just yeah like instantaneous within a matter of seconds. It might take a couple of minutes. Right. Who knows? I could see them running around, all of a sudden their arm going limp, and then their other arm going limp, and then their jaw going blah, and right, then, like, their right. face melting away, and something like that, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, so I'd, I'd say they, you know, within the space of one round, they could lop off a limb. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
definitely. Now they have another problem, though, because they just cut an artery. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's you when you use fire that, and lots of it. Right. That's when you bring out the burning hands to cauterize the wound. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's draw it back in now. Let's go back to the question at hand. <laughs> We've gone off in different directions. So this guy's asking pretty much if, like, you get a big spider bite. For example, the spider hits your arm. Are you going to be able to cut it off and that cut the poison right there, slow it down? What do you guys think about that? I would say if they made their save, um, yeah, then yeah, maybe they could cut off the limb or do something to to well, get the po- their save. They wouldn't have to worry about the death thing, right? But so you're saying you're saying, saying if they not. failed it, yes, they failed yeah. it. Yeah, and the guy he's saying if the, he, I mean, I think basically he's saying in his game he must have his spiders do specific target areas of attack. So say the spider attacks and bites his arm. Poison save right there. So right. now, if he yeah. fails to save, can his companion like chop off the arm right there and save the character? Well, I think this ties into do you know in character, the <laughs> other players don't know he failed or made a save. Right, he got bit by a spider, and I would say even if you made your save, I would tell the pl- I would tell the player your character feels not good. Right. Uh, he's, you know, and now if he wants to translate that as I failed my save, you know, say you're making a save for him secretly, which I think in this case I would, uh, as opposed to him rolling it and all the other players seeing the result, uh, I would, I would roll it myself. I would tell the player, regardless of whether he failed or saved it, I would say your character does not feel good. Right. Uh, and then wait and see what if he, what if he saved and he realizes he still feels really ill. Uh, you know, he's not going to die, but he didn't know that. And he <laughs> quickly lop off my arm. <laughs> yeah. Why not? I'd say, hey, you know, you didn't know. Uh, mm-hmm. And if he fails it, you know, again, I would say, yeah, you know, I'd make a secret roll to see, you know, how many rounds before he dies. And if they lop an arm off, uh, I would say you might you might even have it. Or I would say, you know, hey, if they lop off an arm, if he's going to die in four rounds and they lop it off in two, uh, then he'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, you know, this is stuff that I almost wouldn't tell the players. I, I, I like to make them learn through experience, yeah. you know. Well, I may even if you had a druid in the party and it was caused by like a giant spider in this case – have the druid know, well, when you're affected by this poison, if you're going to die, this is what happens. So he knows, like, kind of knows the symptoms of the poison because it's an animal. Maybe sure. have him make an intelligence check or something to be like, well, no, you're, yeah, you don't feel good. That just means your body's fighting it off. You're, you don't have the hives here or the, you're breaking into a cold sweat with a fever or something. And he would like, no, this is, means you're going to die. This means you're fighting it off. Sure. I'd even allow that for a straight magic user to make kind of a guess like yeah. that. Yeah. Or a cleric, uh, because uh, I would say, again, this is one of those areas where a magic user can shine uh, beyond their ability to simply cast untold magic missiles. Uh, you know, they would they, perhaps that spider poison is a component used by that magic yes. user for one of his spells. And he's researched it. He knows the signs to look for. He says, oh, you know, two rounds go by and, and the guy hasn't died yet. Uh, the magic turns around and says, oh, he'll be all right. <laughs> Just a flesh wound. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, if he were going to die, he'd be dead already. Yeah. Cool. 
All right. So uh, let's go to our emails. If you want to write an email, you can go to our website at rfipodcast.com, click on contact us, and there is a place for you to send us email. Or you can write us directly at rfistaff at gmail.com. First email comes from Bryant, and he says, I'd love to hear reviews of modules. That's my favorite topic by far. I am still going over a lot of your back issues. One module that I would like to hear reviewed is I-7, Baltron's Beacon. I know that isn't a classic or anything, but I have a fond memory of playing it when I was in high school in the public library with some friends. I've always loved the cover as well. Thanks for all your efforts, Bryant. Well, it's a classic for him then. Yeah. Well, I can't see why we couldn't do a review of that sometime. I'm, I'm not familiar with the module. I'd have to look for it, but sure. Blackstone, I mean, maybe we call on him for that one. Yeah, yeah that guy. Jeez. <sighs> that bum. What the heck he's doing? What a bum. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll send message by carrier pigeon to him. He's very old school. Yeah, I'm sure. <clears throat> but yeah, that would be something to look into. I, I know a little bit about it. It was one of those modules back in, I think, I want to say mid-80s, getting to the end of the uh, first edition era that just kind of like slipped through the cracks. Nobody knows a whole lot about it. So, including me. So, was yeah, that one of those uh, UK pre- uh, published models? No, it was one of the intermediate series i7. Ah, it's the only okay. thing I really know about it. So, yeah, I have to look into it. Why not? Groovy. Next email comes from Ed saying, just found the podcast and love it. After a 20-year hiatus, I'm returning to first edition. I played 4E and I said, WTF, why are we playing Magic the Gathering slash Call of Duty? (laughs) After after that, we returned to 1E. Laugh out loud. (laughs) That's how he ends his email. (laughs) Nice. And our last email comes from Overlord. (gasps) The Invincible Overlord? And just overlord. Oh, doesn't he have I, a city state? I was gonna say, doesn't isn't he in his city state? Nah, probably. Anyway, he said, "I'm curious. In your long and illustrious game histories, have any have any of you played a bit of tongue in cheek and added into your something into your game, which is a bit I don't know humorous? I know Will doesn't like that sort of play, but I have been thinking of having my group meet up with some of the D and D cartoon characters in a tavern." And without overly saying, oh, sorry, overtly saying their names and such, simply giving them detailed descriptions of the characters. Should they, uh, he's asking, should they interact in depth and ask, they'll hear the names Hank, Presto, Sheila, Eric, etc. No uni. For the love of Dark Lord, no uni. Ever. <laughs> Wise choice. Yeah. Wise. I even thought about having them bump into Shadow Demon or Venger. Tiamat is in. This is the part I don't get. Tiamat is in uh, in power deity in the current. Okay, so Tiamat. Let me retranslate this line. Tiamat is apparently in another game as a power deity, so he has to leave her out. Okay. Have you guys ever used elements like this? Have you ever translated the characters into first edition? I know they did for third edition. Anyway, keep up the great work on all the podcasts. Thank you very much, Overlord. I've not done that, although I think the occasional uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, adventure is a really nice way to, you know, in the middle of a serious campaign, there's no harm in doing a, kind of a one-off that can be kind of funny. And, and I would definitely have him fight that little short, bald guy, Dungeon Master. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think my my yeah. games naturally uh, uh well my players are naturally kind of goofy anyway. So doesn't mean we don't have a serious game, but I mean there's naturally going to be some humor coming into the whole thing anyway every way. Uh anyway, but um as like a, as a whole adventure um yeah i've done that from time to time and it's fun so yeah it's as long as you do it as long as you don't do it cons- all the time then it, it then it gets seems kind of gimmicky and and uh and just you know it it, it lacks the uh it, it just takes something away from it you know yeah. If you do it just once in a while, I think it's cool. Yeah, I can even just don't s- overdo it. I can even see you running a one shot where the your players are the characters from the cartoon. Sure. Yeah. And, and maybe recreate some of the cartoons. Wasn't there a module like that? <sighs> well, you know, if you look at some of the older modules like uh like EX one and EX two Dungeon Land and Land Beyond the Magic Mirror, they were they were, you know, tongue in cheek of of, you know, Alice in Wonderland. So those are kind of humorous in some respects. I know oh, the, yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, the Castle Greyhawk that was released back in the day, which was really had nothing to do with the original Castle Greyhawk, was all humorous. And a lot of people moaned and groaned about that. Because <laughs> for mm-hmm. other reasons. But... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's no problems with uh, with having a little bit of humor into the game, especially if you're yeah. talking about, I don't know, the D and D cartoon, which was back then. I didn't think it was like all that too humorous and stuff. I think it'd be kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, and who wouldn't want to see Bobby the Barbarian go berserk on something? Yeah. Oh my god, that'd be so great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I'm working on a top secret SI game that just. It's going to be rather wacky um, because the whole premise is George Clooney is a spy. So, you, so like, George Clooney's a spy for the government, as is Angelina Jolie. All those celebrities that are do the charity work overseas and say we need to, like, help the people in Sudan or whatever. No, they're actually just on spy missions when they're visiting those areas. And that's the whole premise. Yeah, and, you know, Michael does that all the time. I mean, he's doing a – he's done – with his Call of Cthulhu and with Marvel, you know, he did Catastrophe, where your kiss yeah. in Marvel, and he did Gilgan's Island, uh, where they actually get stranded on the on the uh, lost island of Arlay. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh! I did a game like that in uh, what was it? I think it was last year at uh, Gen Con where we played uh, Call of Cthulhu, and it was um, I, I think I might mention this past we it was the Clue Board. And each of us, I played Colonel Mustard. Someone was Professor Plum. <laughs> nice. And oh, Mrs. Awesome. White. And it was great, man. It was so much fun. I had oh, a real good like, time with that. I'd be Professor yeah. Plum. Right. <laughs> yeah, definitely, though. I think that there's always room to have a kind of just a tongue-in-cheek uh, game, I think. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just fun. Yep. A good TV show to watch that's to- 100% tongue-in-cheek is Psych, but, you know. Speaking about Clue, Clue, because they did an episode on Clue that was really good, so (laughs) check it out. Oh, definitely. I've I've never actually edited those, but if you just sit in any one of my games, every one of my games is tongue-in-cheek, so. 
I Actually, can't... I remember uh, way back now, the thought just returned to me. When I was uh, uh, in high school, uh, we played in this one guy's campaign, and, and we started calling ourselves the Smurfs of Doom. And <laughs> we named every person in the party. The thief was Klepto Smurf. Uh, the uh, magic user was, uh, was he, Meglo, Megalomaniac Smurf or something like that. Oh, my uh, gosh. <laughs> I always like Klepto Smurf. Megalomaniac Smurf. Smurf. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh uh, yeah, we'd start doing the little Smurfs whistles. We were going down the hallway. <laughs> That's Good just times. wrong. Right. <laughs> so how many lockers did you get stuffed into? Too many to count. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh I think that's gonna wrap up that segment for now. Let's uh, head over into table manners. Typical of all the evil creatures in the world. I like to find one with table manners. What are you kidding me? I spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. All right, and table manners this week, we are going to uh, talk about magic users again because we had a lot of people interested in talking about us talking about magic users and what to make them. you know, special, more interesting, kind of add a little little flavor to the magic users. So um, let's uh, get started on to that. Yeah. Well, just as an magic aside. User part, electric Boogaloo. Yeah. Just as an aside, though, before we get into this, I did find the stats for the D&D cartoon characters over at penandpapergames.com. So I'll th- have a link to their, their stats in the show notes. Oh, now, sure. Is that for 1E or for 3? Uh, 1E. Oh, awesome. These hey. are, yep, one, someone took the time to make them 1E characters, so. And, and Nick, I'm going to kill you. You and DM Mike from Save or Die with that electric boogaloo thing. <laughs> <laughs> you used to drive me nuts on Save or Die with that, now you're doing it here, so. All right, I won't do it again. All right, good. I good. promise I won't do it until next episode, okay? Oh, no! Besides, <laughs> Nick should be Electrum bo- Boogaloo. That's true. Yes, Electrum I like electric. You know, Amy and electric pieces. <laughs> this episode, you're getting you're getting copper. No bronze. Duh, mm, what? No steel pieces. Yes. Yeah, we found some <laughs> leftover from our Dragonlance episode. So here, have some steel. Oh, great! I got some washers. Terrific. Yeah. Uh, anywho, um, just some of the things that uh, we could talk about on magic users just kind of adding to them besides being just a bunch of spell lobbers um one of the things i like to kick around as far as an idea for everybody to use is uh once we talked about sages uh for uh magic uh why not use uh the sage information uh the dmg for npcs why not use that for um for magic users, you know, mm-hmm. why not add that information into magic users? So I was thinking you could do that for uh, when you create your character. You can go over to your dungeon master's guide and pull up the information on sages, and uh, then you can find out. Oh, okay, let's see what I could be for for a sage. You could either roll it up, or if, with your DM's permission, you could just pick it from the table. I think it would be most fun just to kind of roll, see what sort of minor, uh, major fields that your character has. 
So it's another thing that you can add for your sage character. Yeah. Uh, some of the information out of that table. Maybe he's knowledgeable on demonology and history and legends and folklore. You never know. So that'd be some good stuff to have if, when it, when maybe a situation calls for it in a dungeon or in a city environment, wherever it may be, he could come up and be the expert in that that particular field. So yeah, that's sure. one more thing you can add. Yeah, your... that's neat. I like the idea of, of not just having the all-knowing sage, but sages that are specialized in different fields. Right, and your magic user maybe could be that. So that would be one little thing that you can add to making a magic user kind of fleshing it out a little bit more. Yeah, and magic users don't have to go adventuring to earn their gold either. They have, If they have that specialized knowledge, people will come to them like a sage and give them cash for their knowledge. Oh, sure. Yeah. And not only that, but, uh, you know, here's something. When your magic user is not adventuring, perhaps he's earning a little money on the side by writing spells and such for other people. Right. And uh, by the way, I, I need to mention something here. My uh, I need to admit my uh, wrong on the last episode when I said that uh, it was possible to cast a spell from your spell book and then make a or and have a make a copy of it you might say because as was pointed out to me correctly by Vince uh the write spell allows you to write spells i believe Vince was it spells that you ha- are that your character does not yet comprehend but may yeah. later on it uh, says right in the first line he or she cannot understand at the time due to due to level or lack of sufficient intelligence actually Okay, that's interesting. Very interesting. All right, so you know what? Uh, you could, though. Well, what if you did understand a spell, though, and say somebody came to you and uh, they didn't have the right spell and they said, hey, you know, uh, could you copy this spell into my spell book and your character was going to do it for a fee? Would that be possible? I would say no because every spell book is unique to that individual. So your chicken scratch isn't the same as his chicken scratch. Every magic user is taught a different different method, which is the reason why you need read magic back in these editions because not every magic user is a standard font slash writing slash length. I see. So got rid of the read magic spell in later editions because they made everything just uniform. Yeah, oh, everybody went to the same school of magic. Yeah. Everybody yeah. went to Hogwarts. Although illusionists <laughs> don't actually use magical writing when they're doing their spell books. They use, a, they use a secret code language that they write yeah. their spells with. They use an Enigma machine. That's right. They're using the Enigma <laughs> machine. <laughs> All written in code. Great. Oh, they Good got that stuff. magic user. They use the magic viewer thing. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you know, and, and that's an important difference, though, because, you know, I've had campaigns before where an illusionist character said, hey, you know, uh, is there any way that I could try to copy that magic user spell and learn it? And you have to say, hey, no, sorry, that's an entirely different field of magic. Hmm. Yeah. But, but I do like, uh, Matt, your explanation of Chicken Scratch. I actually yeah. do like that. It's basically magic users each have their own version of shorthand. Yeah, exactly. And 
that and like Vince said, that's why you need things such as read magic because that spell just deciphers the magic energy contained in it and makes it something you can understand. So yeah. if you wanted to, every time you learn that spe- read, uh, tried to learn that spell out of your spell book, cast read magic, I guess I would let you do it then. But that would probably get obnoxious pretty quick, having to cast read magic every time you wanted to memorize a spell out of your spell book. Yeah, that'd be right. a bit annoying. <laughs> yeah, I would say you can memorize, you can read your own spells, your own chicken scratch without needing to use a read right, magic. Right, but, but if you had someone else scribe in your spell book, you would have right. to read magic every time. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that. I think that's a good way to do it. And don't forget also that write is no simple issue in itself. Uh, aside from having special ink, uh, you know, the, the quality paper and all of that, uh, it's, I believe it is something like uh, eight, two to eight hours per level of spell to do. So if you're wanting to quickly jot down a seventh level spell uh yeah sure if you got two days (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and especially not when you're adventuring if you're down in the middle of a of a dungeon uh can you really expect the rest of your party to hunker down for uh you know a day and a half while you try to do quickly write down a spell because that's about as quick as you're going to do it right a lot of and a lot of people would say well why does it take so long well use your imagination that's where your that's where i guess the the flavor of your campaign and how magic works in your campaign world comes to life and as a dm maybe the explanation is well it's not just a matter of copying on a spell like in english and it's and with 12 point font helvetica you know, it's not like that. You have to use a special ink. You also, maybe the spell that you're learning is an, a really old arcane spell or that the, it's not just words, but you're also maybe inscribing symbols. Maybe mm-hmm. you're, maybe part of the spell is a picture, you know, or, oh, or, sure. or something of that nature. And, and that's where, the complexities come into it to kind of use a, a, a real world uh, analogy. If you look a lot of the illuminated scripts from the medieval and Renaissance period, look how intricately done they were in, in, in the, in the Latin using uh, different types of ink. Some of it was done in gold leaf or silver or very, uh, uh, expensive types of dyes, and all done by hand. Exactly. So, right. Yeah. Kind of use that as an idea. It's like, well, why is it? Well, there's some explanations why. Also, on top of that, your magic user is trying to harness the magical energies and capture them and put them in the spell that's written inside the book. Book or right. scroll. For, right. For and not that. only that, but he's got so to be he's able trying to comprehend it. Right. He's got to comprehend it, but also capture those magical energies into the spell, into the spell book. And maybe another reason why it takes so long is so he won't lose that magical energy. It just doesn't escape out into the ether. And also, if he has like one, say he has an error when scribing it, all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it doesn't work. So that's why it takes, he has to take his time and be get every symbol just right, every character just right. He can't write 
the wrong phrase down than scribble it out and keep writing. No. Nope. Yeah, they don't have magical wi- uh, whiteout. No, no magical whiteout. So that's Erase another. Spell. <laughs> You're right. Oh, okay. Erase. They're okay. Maybe they do have that. Yes. E- erase. <laughs> but then you have to start over from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you imagine if you spent all this, you spent like 14 hours writing a spell and suddenly you realize your quill just put a big ink block <laughs> right. on the paper. Yeah. You're like, oh, start all over. Yeah. You're, you're, like, you're trying to write out a wish spell in your book and then someone comes up behind you after like three days of you writing nonstop and like... Say how you doing? Pat you on the back, and then your finger. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just oh, suck. Yeah, and that's where you find the page right in. Add fireball on that jerk. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, maybe those are some explanations I could think of of why it takes so long to scribe a spell. Yeah. So, well, each person learns a spell at a different rate, so. Sure, at different rate. I mean, those could all be factors. Right. The 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 learning rate of that person, you know? It's like learning, think about learning code when you're first learning a programming language. Sure, you can copy a bunch of code on a piece of paper, but you won't know what it really stands for until you actually study it and look things up. Yeah. And decide what this means and what that means. Other than that, it's just crap on a piece of paper to you. Right. Yeah, it would be crap thing, on a uh, piece of paper to me anyway because I understand code. So. Right. <laughs> what if, uh, for whatever reason, there was a time constraint and your players wanted to, say, rush the scribing process? What do you think about maybe giving them a role to see if they could oh, scribe yeah. it faster? But if they fail, perhaps it just doesn't work or perhaps when they, they think it succeeds, when – the uh, they go to memorize a spell and cast it. It does something a little off. Oh, well, maybe okay. Well, we could use like something like maybe they say, "Okay, I'm going to cast haste on myself." Right. Instead, it's slow. I'm write because... the spell really fast. But I would say, okay, you're hasted that much, that many times over. Yeah. Then that many times over is the possibility of you screwing up the spell writing it. Exactly. But you know what? I would probably not penalize them using a haste because it's all relative time being. Yeah. But here's the kicker on that one. Uh, It does age the caster to cast haste. Mm -hmm. So how easy do you think it's going to be to go up to somebody and say, hey, I want to write this spell really fast. Do you mind aging yourself five years or whatever? Uh, And I'm going to need to write it. I I really need to put it, uh, get it in triplicate. (laughs) Yeah, I would. (laughs) If, unless I was playing an elf character, I would say no. <laughs> and you know what? Even elf characters in my game, uh, elves, uh, everything is, again, relative. So uh, the human may age. You know, I have to look this spell up again, Haste. But I think, what is it, like three, five years? I know a wish is three years it ages you. Uh, but I can't remember what it is with Haste. But I would say, you know, say it's five years for a human. I would say it's 50 years or so for an elf. I'd make it, oh. you know, because that way elves don't just say, oh, I'll do it. Sure, <laughs> why not? It's a day for me. I'd be like, no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's relative. Yeah, instead of three to five days, you're at it, or three to five years, it's 30 to 50 years for an elf. Exactly. Like so, uh, sure, you know what? I wouldn't penalize them on using a haste, but 
they're, it's going to be next to impossible to talk somebody into doing a haste on them. You know, it, <laughs> sure, I'll age myself so you can get your spell written faster. Not. Yeah, I'm looking mm. at haste right now in the player's handbook, and yeah. I'm not seeing anything it talks about aging the caster. Really? I could have sworn. Right there. Additionally, the spell ages the repli- uh, recipients due to speeding metabolism process. The recipients, not the caster. Oh, okay. Well, that's even... All right. So now a guy might say, well, let us not forget, too, haste is a higher level spell, I believe. But, third level. Uh, third level. Uh, is it third? Well, yeah. yeah, but you know what? Third level, you have to be fifth level to cast, cast it. Uh, but that said, uh, okay, the guy comes up and says, sure, I'll cast haste on you. But do you really want to keep aging just to say, you know, just so you can save some time? I don't know. And uh, no. Now, well, what I would say is this. If you are just rushing, right, and you're trying to get this thing done while everybody else is sleeping that night, aside from the fact that you're going to take penalties for not sleeping, uh, aside from the fact that you're not, that you're not going to have any new spells memorized because you weren't memorizing spells, you were writing a spell all night, uh, I would start giving percentile uh, failure chan- uh, checks on that spell when you cast it because you're rushing it. Just like you were saying, Matt. I think yeah. it was you, Matt, who yeah. said that. Is you're rushing. It's this is a rush job work, and and writing a spell is something that most magic users retire away from the rest of society. You know, they 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 seclude themselves, and so they have the peace and quiet necessary to organize their thoughts and carefully put their spells down, just as you were saying, Nick. Uh, and to to be rushed, especially if you're in a it's subterranean place where it's dripping water on your book, and it's dark, <laughs> and you you have like a single candle that you're using to write by. Uh, yeah, there's that's just rife with with uh botches yeah in in make in writing that spell correctly or what about having your right. players find a spell book of a deceased uh magic user where that's all he did he rushed he was sloppy so he just rushed every <laughs> spell in it mm-hmm. yeah. chance of spell be... failure now yeah. goes up dramatically right I, <laughs> I i found the spell book of nimrod the incompetent yes and then oh, they're like there's all I these spe- that one yeah yeah you could have some he was the fastest no spell book writer in history book. yeah how'd he die well he, he wrote, cast his own spells. Yeah, the next page he's got fireball the one after that he's got his grandma ethel's brownie recipe what was this man thinking yeah, he accidentally <laughs> casted permanent haste on himself and died rather rapidly. Mm. Yeah, well, you know what? Well, he got his polymorph self mixed up with polymorph other. Yeah, he turned yeah. himself into a toad. Yeah. Well, um, now that talk about all this scraping of spells into a spell book, let's talk about the spell book then. I sure. Mean, you know, well, we there's some there's some rules in Unearth Arcana about the spell book. Well, let's jump into DM rules for that one next, then. Oh, that's in DM rules? I am so sorry. (laughs) I am so sorry on that, sir. (laughs) No worries. Yeah, definitely. Uh, So let's head into DM rules. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want, but are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Yeah. 
So that brings us to DM rules. And what a great segue into it. Why don't we talk a little bit about probably the most the most underestimated and most important magic item a magic user will ever own, and that is his spellbook. Yeah. So what exactly goes into having a spellbook? I'm going to say it's not a simple log of your – it's not your diary. Uh, spellbooks, according to Unearthed Arcana – uh, come in two varieties. You have your uh, you have your traveling spell books, which are kind of like spell book light, uh, and then you also have uh, your standard spell books. And this is the one that is most likely going to be found in your home, and less likely to be if you're in, if you're smart. It's less likely the one you're going to be carrying around with you through uh, through a dungeon. Because the standard spell books are much thicker, uh, they can hold many more spells. I believe up to uh, they they carry something like twenty four spells of first through third, sixteen spells of fourth through sixth, or up to eight spells of seventh to ninth level. And and that right there should tell you that the higher the level of spell, the more pages it takes, uh, it fills up in putting that spell down. Which is another reason why it takes a long time to write a spell. You could be talking about writing a novella. Uh, if you're talking about a wish spell. Right. So it's going to make it very hard. Now, I, I believe, and, and in my games, I always remind the, 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 the magic user players when they're choosing, because obviously the first thing they say is, well, I'm carrying a standard spell book because I can fit more spells in it. And I say, that's fine. Just remember, if you lose your standard library, you probably, I, odds are you don't have a backup library to that one. Uh, your traveling spell books are nice. They carry many less spells. Uh, I think they can carry only up to two spells of seventh or eighth or, or ninth level. Uh, first level, they carry like six spells only. Uh, they're much thinner. Uh, they're more durable. Uh, and at the end of the day, they're the copies, I guess you might say, that you made from your standard spell book library. So if you lose a traveling book, it's probably not the end of the world because by the time you get back to your tower or what have you, you can always go back to the standard library and get the big, thick, nice one out and, and start rereading that. What do you guys think? Well, my spell books are just one small, slimline spell book designed by Apple. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have an iPhone. Yeah, so, uh, they use their uh, their their iPads on that. No, my spell books are real slimline, thin spell books, and each page magically moves to another page. So it only looks like there's only maybe about ten pages in the book. Mm. So they flip a page, a new page appears, and uh, also a magic user wants a spell. They can just think about it, and the book opens up to that spell. Oh. So really, they have unlimited amount of spells, pages in their book. Uh, And I also have magic users start off having all first-level spells and sometimes second-level spells, depending on how many players are in my campaign, if I have the time to sit down with a magic user. Oh, very generous of you. It just saves a little time because if there's like nine players in the group, I can't sit there and focus on one player to sit down with spells and things. And, and I know it's not in the spirit of true role-playing, but if there's nine people. I don't have time. Sorry. Right. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Well, and that makes perfect sense. If sure. there's four players, then yeah, I have plenty of time to do that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. since in our area, there's like people like jumping to play a game. So sometimes you get nine. Yeah. 
Right. Now, one of the reasons why I like to use the, the traveling spell books versus the standard books, and, and we actually had to go in the campaign that I run, uh, we had to actually dig into this uh, maybe about a month ago uh, <clears throat> because it's a high-level campaign. They're set, it's set mm-hmm. in the Nine Hells. And the you know one of the first things you notice uh, at high level is that the the exact opposite holds true for the magic user as it does at first level. Instead of now being that guy that can only cast one spell and is pretty much the weakest guy in the party, I think anybody who's run a high level group will quickly agree that the magic user can almost take on the rest of the party at high level. Yeah. Uh, so one of the first things I need to do to levelize things is I, I try to come up with ways to keep a high level magic user in check. So he's just not completely overshadowing the rest of the group. You know, everybody wants to be a hero, not just that guy. So one of the things I do is I use the encumbrance rule and I say, if you want to carry standard spell books and you're a high level magic user, so you have a lot of spells, uh, just understand you probably won't be moving very fast. Uh, anybody who has gone, uh, you know, in college, you have to go from one building to another, or just to a convention for that matter. If you're used to going to Gen Con and you had to hike across Indianapolis with a backpack full of books, you realize pretty quickly that those books get heavy. IPad. Uh, and yeah. magic users aren't exactly the strength. They're not the physical, uh, they're not at the peak of physical strength. Yeah. So these guys are getting tired to begin with, you know. So now, with by introducing the encumbrance rule, and uh, they're more prone now to also go for the traveling books because they're lighter, but they also can carry less spells because of this. Yeah. So they have to. There's be always a trade-off. Careful. Yeah. There's always a trade-off, and I and and they have to be careful about choosing their spells, just because they know every fourth level spell doesn't mean they're going to be carrying every fourth level spell with them into that particular adventure. They should be, mm-hmm. again, and this could tie in with the whole, you know, why you seek out a sage. Uh, they find out they're going into the Underdark. It would behoove them before they leave to get some information about the Underdark so that they know how to select the appropriate spells or the appropriate traveling spell books or even standard books, I suppose, uh, that they're going to bring with them. Uh, because if they're going in the Underdark, they may not need uh, to turn everybody into looking like a tree, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so in this way, you know, they're still powerful, but they're, they, they have some restrictions on right. them at this point. Yeah, but there is a way around that because they have other – just because people assume magic users keep their spells on a spell book doesn't mean that's the only place they can store spells. What's your thoughts on alternative spell books like, say, tattooing some of the most important spells on your own body? Oh, yeah, that would be interesting. Right. People or per- have mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear that one every now and then. The only reason why I don't go with the tattooing idea is I don't think there's enough surface area on your body to it, to, it, to be an effective spell book. Yeah. In one of the later editions, they actually went through and talked about tattooing. Yeah, a tattooing. Body. Wasn't they, it too major or something? Yeah, and it was in like the uh, Complete Arcana uh, from like third edition. 
But yeah. it actually said like a hand you can get is like the equivalent of a page. A forearm's three pages. A chest is six pages and so on. So you hmm. could possibly – you could – maybe you can't get a full spell on that body part. But if you combine a few body parts, you can get a couple spells on you. Sure. You know, I think it depends up to the DM at that point right. on how he views uh, – because, you know, I know Vince and I, we rerun uh, different ways of looking at, you know, how – what we were just saying. Uh, and it, so it's going to really come down to the DM on that right. one, how he views the space requirement. I view it as spells take up a lot of space. Right. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean every DM does. If, right. if anything, it will make the character look really interesting. Yes. That's why he I has mean, big giant robe to cover up all the tattoos. You just imagine this dude wearing a wearing a, a cloak and he pulls a, uh, or the ro- or a robe and he pulls his uh, the robe uh, sleeves up and you see all these strange arcane symbols on it. <laughs> that, would, right. that would probably blow away a lot of pl- other player characters. Yeah. Mage burned as the spells go away. I actually thought about that yeah. myself. <laughs> does a heal spell? Does a heal spell bring back that piece of skin? No, I thought uh, I just healed new skin. So that means his spell will be lost. Yeah. Ah, good point. Yeah, because and I don't even want to know what he does when he has to read magic missile. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, magic mit- Oh crap! Yeah. Oh man. Well, yeah. it, let's talk about the spell book and how, like, you can make. Well, the standard spell book, as is described in Arnarth Arcana, it's that's that's standard. That's your, that's your plain Jane vanilla spell book, as it were. You know, there's nothing really special for it. But so, I was thinking about this. A spell book is probably pretty. Um, a standard spell book is pretty uh, um, vulnerable to, I would say, three different things, the acid, the fire, and water. So mm-hmm. maybe to make your spell book a little more resistant, a little more uh, special in that respect, maybe you can find certain things that will make uh, spell books, the, either the cover or the pages, acid resistant or, sure. or fire resistant. And I just found a couple of things I... Uh, just for idea, I, I, I grabbed from, from Hackmaster from the Spell Slinger's Guide, and they have a list of like different like things for the pages, the ink, the binding, and the cover of a spell book. And it gives costs and how much time it takes. So, like, say, for example, you wanted to make fire-resistant pages for your spell book. Okay. Say, uh, and a cost for that, for every four pages would be a hundred gold pieces. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's wild. I could see Just, that. You could cast resist fire on the on the book. It'd be I, I think you'd also have to cast enchant item yeah. on enchant. the book. Oh, sorry. Right. To make or, it a receptive medium. Well, the the maybe the fire resistant pages are of a certain type of of plant. Or if you're gonna make them acid repellent. Every four pages is a is a hundred gold pieces. Sure, you could have you could have a book where the pages are made out of burnished metal. Yeah, right. Of course, now um, the encumbrance is. How much about higher. like special ink? Uh, maybe you want water resistant ink. Every four pages of water resistant ink is hundred and fifty gold pieces yeah. that you got to invest yeah. into that water resistant ink. Or, but or, what is that water resistant ink? That's where the mm-hmm. magic user has to go out and start questing for these little things. Yeah. So. 
or just oh, yeah, resistant yeah. to a bookworm. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, oh, you're traveling you through forests and caves. That book, that traveling book in particular, is going to have a lot of opportunity to have little buggers get in your pack when you're not looking. And, Rock grow. Yep. There you, there you go with, then uh, what would help protect that? A carrying case for your spell book. Is it leather or wooden? Maybe even if, it could be even metal. Maybe it's a bag of holding. Right. Yeah, put yeah. It in, or put it in the bag of holding and not worry about it. Right. And uh, actually, I make my characters. And, yeah. And actually, in a large city, that could be a way a magic user could make money just crafting cases mm-hmm. for spell oh, books. You could what be about a the guy who makes spell books? Yeah. You know, having a fire resistant cover. Maybe it's the fire, not fire, invulnerable to fire, but maybe fire resistant. Maybe it gets a bonus to its save versus fire. You know, maybe that's probably an additional maybe 50 or 100 gold pieces to the cover. Uh, maybe it's metal reinforced. You know, yeah. think of a price, you know, yeah. 50 gold pieces, 100 gold pieces, whatever like that. Uh, what if it was, what if you're, you made a spell book out of dragon scales? Ooh. Well, there you go. That would depend on the dragon. Ooh, if it was cool. maybe a black dragon scales, maybe that's your acid resistant cover. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Red dragon scales resistant to fire. There the you go. In my game, I allow the player to choose one of those things if it's uh, waterproof or fireproof as well. And those are cool things that you yeah. could have for your magic right. user and maybe for your illusionist yeah. to, to have for their spell book to help uh, not not just resist those types of attacks that could happen in in a mishap like <laughs> your magic user gets caught in a fireball spell or <laughs> or it gets hit with black dragon acid you know it's which happens help with, yeah which happens so those might help with a save on it and it also makes the book sound a little more interesting right. and it adds a little mystery to the spell book that the, the magic user happens. I mean, if you want to role play that out, maybe he pulls out mm-hmm. his 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 spell book and it has this really cool kind of blackish reddish cover, and then he explains, yes, it was made out of uh, dragon red dragon scales from uh, from uh, the red dragon uh, from a red dragon five hundred years ago that was slain. It was passed down, and blah blah blah. You can go into all sorts of things with that. It adds a little, adds a little flavor, yeah. and you know, yeah. It, you could have the dragon scales or the covers, you know, and it locks, mm-hmm. and inside you have the vellum, uh, which mm-hmm. would be kind of cool, you know, or parchment or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. But you know, or it could be big, big rocks. You could be like Moses. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd say there's going to be an encumbrance penalty there, though. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what I think an important thing here, though, is that to stress is that your spell book a lot of thought should go into your spell book you know i i th- i always i like my the my magic user players have learned the hard way especially in the adventure they're in right now down in the hells uh where they did get caught uh they well they first they had to fight a red dragon on in avernus and and they all had to make saves on their items which I don't mm-hmm. think they had had to do much before this, this game. Uh, they were kind of like, I have to do what? What do you mean I lost my, my weapon? You know, I'm like, oh, your shield's still there. It's half grafted to your arm. But, uh, but you know, I mean, especially the magic users. Man, you've mm-hmm. got to take so much care of that spell book yeah. because when it's gone, you're in a world of hurt. Right. 
Yeah. And uh, so, and and replacing a spell book is is it, you know it's not just the difficulty of replacing the spells that you lost, but if you have a really neato Kino spell book, replacing that with a similar kind is going to be next to impossible. Right. And mm-hmm. you also mentioned er- uh, earlier about just how higher level spells, as your magic user gains them, they take up more pages. Eventually, your standard spell book you started off with is going to run out of pages. Yeah. You're going to mm-hmm. have to make another spell book. Yeah. If you exactly. don't find one off another, you know, the big bad guy evil mage at the end of the adventure. Or right. take hits. Which will take you a while anyway to decipher. Right. So some of these things when you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be running out of pages in my spell book. I got to start planning for the next one here real soon. So this is how I'm going to make my next spell book. And you can like go down the list and those things you got to think about are the ink, the paper, the binding and the cover. And all those things are, are if you're just going to make a standard one, just go with what's in our Earth Arcana. No big whoop. Well, but even a standard make... one, you're talking a standard spell book costs a thousand gold pieces in right. materials plus an additional 100 gold pieces per spell level for each spell contained right. therein. Right. That and gets top, expensive. And on, on top of that, if you want to make it at special, like we were just talking about, like acid-resistant cover or fire-resistant cover, water-resistant inks, those all add up into the cost of your spell. Yeah. Exactly, because if you can't do that spell, if you can't enchant the spell to be, uh, the, the book to be resistant like that, then you're going to have to pay somebody else right. to do it. And those well, guys are cheap. Basically, think of your spell book as a car. Mm-hmm. You get the mm-hmm. standard model, or you want to get the XL? You want the spinning rims? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, here's another one more thing that I think people should take into account. Uh, and uh, we probably won't get too much into this, but uh, aside from just the cost of maintaining a good spell book, which, by the way, this, again, is where I was a little bit off. Well, well I don't – if you're going to cast spells out of your spell book – Keep in mind, it should be your last ditch uh, uh, effort. That's the last resort. Yes, yeah, I mean, like you really, you, you, the whole party is basically about to die when the magic user starts reading out mm-hmm. his spell because not only does it get rid of that spell out of his spell book, which we've already covered, is going to take a while to replace. It mm-hmm. could uh, per spell level cumulatively. I think it's. Uh, I think it's like what one percent uh, yeah. spell level. Uh, you roll a d one hundred, and if you fail, it's also getting rid of other spells in your book from preceding pages. Mm-hmm. So you're you could really damage your book by casting spells right. directly out of it. Uh, but uh, you know, if if you're willing to lose your spell book, maybe it's a traveling spell book, and you keep a, a standard copy back at home. Yeah, even then, you know, it's if you get back home, <laughs> you're relying on your spells to get you back home. So, but you know, hey, if 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 that's it's the, the only life thing or death you got, situation, yeah, yeah, if it's the only thing that you have left, then you know, obviously, being alive without a spell is better than being dead with a spell, mm-hmm. right? I also give, <laughs> I also given that chance since, because uh, I've had it happen before in a game more than once where the party was in a life or death situation and the magic user had the cast out of a spell because they, oh, you don't have it memorized. I'm like, Oh no, I don't. And that would save the party or they, he already 
casts it once, but if he casts it again, that would be, you know, the the saving moment. I always uh, thought of, I don't remember if it was in Earth Arcana, but I do incorporate it in my game. If you cast it directly out of your spell book, it cuts the uh, the casting time down as well. That's how I always done it. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, for me, I would say almost the opposite, uh, because you spent an entire night memorizing the correct way. To, even though you're reading it from your book, right? You, you, your character is assumed to have spent some time the night before uh, getting it straight in his head, so that he can cast it relatively quickly when he needs mm-hmm. to the next day. But if he's casting it cold right out of the book, he has not had the time to get that spell straight in his head. Uh, he's just going by rote, you know. He's he's just saying what it says. I always kind of looked at it to where he's just reading the spell out of the book and un- unlocking those energies inside the book and just go. He's you can look at it. Worry that about way. the memorization part. That's how yeah. I always kind of play. But you can play it that way too. Yeah, so, you I know, mean, there's two ways of looking at it. I look yeah. at it where you have to understand it and you have to study it the night before. And if you're just reading it right out of the book, you haven't had time to really get it straight in your head. But you could also look at it. Hey, you know what? What you're really doing is memorizing it, and that's taking time, so you don't have to uh, look in the book. Mm-hmm. But if you have the book in front of you, you know, there's two ways of looking at that, and that's going to be again yeah. up to the up to your up game, to up to your DM. Yeah. How do you like exactly. to view that? Uh, but uh, uh, and uh, my mind is going a little bit blank <laughs> here okay. for some reason. What was it? I was about to. Yeah. Anybody else got anything on the spell yeah. books though? Yeah, with you guys talking about the cost of the spell book, and it gets rather expensive if you want multiple copies and have mm-hmm. all the. I found an article in Dragon talking about casting spells for cash. Basically, how to make money as a magic user without actually adventuring and getting yourself killed, <laughs> since you're kind of squishy. And going through this, it was just some interesting things like Wizard's Eye, Clairvoyance. Those are awful useful for a king, especially if they're, say, in battle, if they're at war. All of a sudden, you're a magic user, and you're like the NSA. He has like a whole room (laughs) of magic users with crystal balls scrying on like an opposing kingdom. Yes, the kingdom's predator drones. <laughs> exactly. They're right. You have one. Okay, they're in this location. Then the next wizard throws the fireball. There you go. Yeah. I mean, you can also even you can even take it a step down further. Say a noble has a colicky baby. Wizard comes in. Sleep spell. Boom. Boom. Oh, done. Yeah. Ma- magic. You- paltry fee of, oh, 100 gold pieces. Exactly. <laughs> I will ensure your child gets a good night's sleep. You want yeah. your child to have a good night's sleep, so you'll give me 100 gold. There you go. Yeah, I mean, just little things like that, because remember, you have magical powers. And mm-hmm. even for mundane tasks, like, say, a farmer has to build a barn really quickly. You cast haste on him so he can get that barn built quicker yeah. for a fee or maybe a cut of the farm profits. There's all kinds of enterprising ways you can actually be quite wealthy and never actually have to go out and slay a dragon. There you sure. Go. And you know what? Issue five of Dragon Magazine, you can look up. There's a neat article called Wizard Research Rules by Charles Preston Goforth Jr. Uh, and if you could go into that, and it gives some really interesting uh, insight into the research that goes in to preparing a spell for your book. 
uh, and there's quite a bit to it. Uh, and, and, you know, I remembered what I was going to say earlier, by the way. I was going to say one of the things that you definitely have to do, uh, I think, especially at high level, uh, is, uh, is well, at the beginning of the campaign, one of the first things that, that the, the prospective magic user player and the DM need to go off to the side and discuss is, does that magic user have a master copy of his spells back home and he's carrying like the abridged traveling version mm -hmm. because if you just go off the assumption that he's only got one set of spell books and he loses them for whatever reason now he's in some real trouble right yeah i could actually see a wizard taking maybe having like one emergency spell carved into his quarter staff like maybe like the right spell. So should he lose his spell book? It, as long as he has his staff, he could start scribing spells from other people's books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in which case, I think now in my situation, incorporating what you just said, Matt, uh, an interesting thing for uh, I think a a, a forward thinking magic user, at least of high level, uh, mid to high level, uh, if they have discussed with their their DM. Uh, that they have a master, you know, copy back at home. That's the nice one. That's it looks real, you know, really nice, and you wouldn't yeah. take it into a dingy dungeon with you. And it's much thicker and everything, and uh, much more vulnerable because it's not a traveling one. Uh, but to incorporate what you were saying, Matt, if if they did have that one emergency traveling spell that wasn't in their book. I think it'd be Dromji's instant summons. <laughs> so yes. If something ever happened to their traveling book, because here's why I let them keep a uh, two copies of their spells. One copy they can never have both copies on. That well, they could if they want, but I mean, right. if they can do the endurance, the encumbrance, and put they want to put all their eggs in one basket. But generally speaking. The master copy is kept back at home, not on the adventure with them, so they don't really have access to it uh, during the adventure. But, ah, Duanzi's instant summons could be a great emergency. Uh, oh, I lost my spellbook. It's a good thing I got the master copy at home, and it's a good thing I got <laughs> Duanzi's instant summons right. uh, you know, with me so I can get access to, to what I have back at home. Because, you know, you traveled three weeks to get to this cave. You're not turning around and going right. back for nobody. Nobody's going to do that. Yeah. Or, or what, <laughs> if you, what if you were a higher level wizard and you had your uh, crystal ball with you? You lost your spell book, but you have a, a spell book sitting on a pedestal that you can just view through your crystal ball. Would you let them read a spell book through, say, a crystal ball or scry? <laughs> Sure, but, you know, here's the problem with that. I, I would tell them this. If they said, hey, can I scry back at my house the uh, the spell? Mm -hmm. Okay, first off, uh, now, setting this up, Matt, did you say they had the book open already? I would I would hope they would actually be smart enough to have an automaton that could chain, turn the pages for them. Oh, but that would be... Unseen that, servant. Yes, an unseen <laughs> servant. Oh. Oh, there you go. Waiting to now, turn the that pages. That is clever. If they thought about that in advance, then I might be willing to do it. But here's the thing. By doing it that way, they would also start – it's the same as reading a, a spell directly out of your book, and they're, they're going to start damaging. And I'd make the damaging percentile – twice as high reading it through right. uh, uh through a magical lens because now they're not now you know distortion and right yeah and i would i maybe even make them have them make a roll 
maybe they can't actually, re- for whatever reason, read that spell through the ball. Yeah, and there could be that, you know. Uh, I would probably first, I would say, okay, well, did you leave the book open because your crystal ball is not going to open it? Right. And if they did say that they had, if they thought of forward enough, uh, and they said, like you said, okay, unseen servant, okay, uh, how are you communicating with your unseen servant to get him? Because, you know, I mean, sure, he'll turn the pages to the spell you want, but uh, two things here. Does he know how to recognize the spell you want? And two, right. how are you telling him that? Because you could see your your place just fine, but how are you communicating with Ventriloquism? it? Ventriloquism? <laughs> at which, <laughs> at which <laughs> point? Will that go uh-huh. through a crystal ball? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. So, see, you, there's a lot of uh, obstacles you would have to work out, and I'm sure there are ways to do it. Maybe you could somehow enhance the range of a audible glamour uh, or a familiar uh, or a familiar if you have a familiar that could make it back there in time maybe maybe what if you had a primate familiar he'd have to swing through a lot of trees if he's gonna yeah. get or no you left him at home just to oh. tr- you left it okay, on. but isn't there a ring? Oh, like the librarian. Yes, He's, you're, you got the orangutan librarian, right? From from, uh, from uh, Discworld. And at which point you just see through your familiar. Okay, but there is there go. a range? And I'd have to look this. Yeah, up. Yeah, I would have to look that up too. See I if there's. Yeah, now we're getting in a little. Now we're getting wacky. Areas. Yes, but yeah, but, you know, I mean, the, this is why it, it, it it's just really. The, the obstacles make it almost impossible. But to... th- right. But that's where you ha- – if it's like a first-level spell and it's only one page, just leave your book open to that page. There you go. So you, you, could, can, yeah. you can get those little spells that you may need in an emergency. You're not going to get your massive 20-page ninth-level spell, and even 20 pages for a ninth-level spell is probably conservative. Right, unless you have Duwamji's instant summon. Yes, it all comes. Yeah, if maybe spells. Yes. Now I know the list. Some listener out there is probably thinking to himself as I talk all about encumbrance. Well, my character's got a portable hole, (laughs) and what party doesn't have a bag of holding? Right. Right. Uh, Well, there are dangers inherent in that one too, Uh, because you want to put your entire spell collection in a portable hole. Because you're not really putting it in a hole, are you? You're putting it in an extra-dimensional space. Just like a bag of holding. Yeah, you're basically <laughs> saying, I'm going to stick my entire library someplace random in the astral plane. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, I'm just going to put everything I know in this pocket universe. Yeah, it'll be there. I hope it doesn't get lost. <laughs> they don't realize that you're not putting it into your own. It's not like this ever-holding. You're putting it someplace. And and especially if a portable hole, you're putting it someplace somebody may just walk by and say, hey, look at this. Yeah. <laughs> they walk away with it. Or, or, yeah, or if it's a – you're high enough level, maybe it starts attracting attention because, ooh, there's a – that's a really nice book. Ooh. <laughs> yes. If you've got wish spells and high-level spells yeah. in the spell book, it's generating some nice magic. Right, uh, and most creatures in the astral plane, I think they're somewhat receptive to that. Yes, uh, 
Yeah, so I definitely, you know, I reach my portable hole and get my trusty eighth level spell book out, yep. and I'd be like, you reach in, all right, but nothing's there. Yep. There's a reason Elminster doesn't do things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, what if I put it in my bag of holding? Why, Same sure. Thing. You should throw everything in your bag of holding. <laughs> Every other party does. Throw Throw that extra sword in there. Throw Oops, your extra uh, hirelings in there while you're at it. Yes. Oh, wait, there's a whole Knights of a Dinner Table thing about that, the Bag World Wars. Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, Heck, let's throw your kind of, hole in there. Yeah. No, wrong. <laughs> but so let's kind of go a little bit further and let's talk about, I like to talk about like the spells themselves okay. and how to make them a little more interesting for the spellcaster. And one of the things I was looking at is, and I know a lot of DMs don't, you know, they dispense with these just for ease of use is, but but just add a little flair, a little more interesting. And it could be the focus of some quests is special spell components, either added to the spell or, or in lieu of another one. And those spell components can obviously come from certain monsters. And one of the, and, I'm just throwing this out here, see what people think about it. There may be a few monsters that you could use as their parts could be spell components. And one of them that just kind of like jumped out right at me, a cornucopia of spell components is the Beholder. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> all those different eyes that could do so many wonderful things. You know, I mean, you got charm person, charm monster, sleep. Uh, the anti-magic ray from the central eye. You got the death ray. Cause serious wounds, slow, fear, disintegration. Now, if you get in a big old battle with that thing and you, you kill the beholder, maybe some of the eye stalks, uh, they survive. And maybe you can use some of those as spell components. Now, it would be up to the DM to figure out, okay, if you're going to use that as spell component, what is it going to do for, like, maybe you recovered the eye stock that causes sleep. So what is that going to do for a sleep spell? Is it, is it going to increase the duration? Well, by how much? Uh, or is it going to increase the range of that sleep? Or not the range. Well, yeah, it could be the range, the, the radius. So it's up to the DM to decide, you know, maybe uh, how much does it add to the, the spell? I mean, maybe the, it'll double it, the duration. Maybe it'll uh, add two sure, more it hit adds, dice. It adds to the, to the potency. Adds to the potency of the spell. Yeah. Uh, maybe if you're lucky enough that you got the anti-magic ray, uh, the central eye, maybe it did survive. Well, if you if you have the the anti-magic shell spell, maybe it doubles the duration, or it only increases it by fifty percent. Yeah. Depending or- on on the you know, how well preserved that eye is. Yeah. Or what about for those spells that require like 500 gold worth of gems or something? Maybe you only mm-hmm. have 450 and you try casting it anyway. Mm-hmm. Try casting spells with inferior components and maybe they're not as effective. Maybe you get some other weird effect as where your substitution maybe it only does half of what it's supposed to. Exactly. <laughs> Well, well, here's yeah, another. Totally. Well, here's another one. Another common, well, not a, a magical creature out of D and D, the cockatrice. So maybe uh, the uh, the feathers off of its tail are magical, 
maybe the red feather um, adds plus one all fired uh, attack rolls when you use a cockatrice spell. Maybe you're going to add that to your fireball spell. Maybe it adds one plus one to each die of damage. Or, and the blue one does plus one to each die of cold damage. You know, just throwing some ideas out of there. There's a lot of different monsters out of D&D. If you're a creative DM, if you want to make magic users even that more interesting um, to add to the, you know, using spell components from these monsters, even giants too, fire giants, maybe those, you know, you can use the, the hair of a fire giant, maybe using that in a, in a spell like a resist, like, or maybe, or even creating a potion, you know, a potion of fire resistance. Maybe that's a key component of it. Yeah, I totally agree. Here's an idea. What if, uh, and I think this plays into, uh, you know, the power of the spell should be reflected in the components used for it. So, oh, absolutely. You know, a raised dead, or, well, I'm sorry, uh, a, uh, in the case of a magic user, uh, a reincarnate. What if it requires the feather of a phoenix? Right. Yeah. You know, and, and there's a great, uh, there's another great article in Dragon Magazine, uh, which uh, is issue 148, called mm-hmm. Arcane Lore by Bruce Kvan, K-V-A-N. Uh, and it goes over a really often neglected uh, area of spellcasting, which is, uh, it's always been just taken for granted, clerics heal and magic users hurt. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are ways for magic users to heal also. There are loopholes, you might say, and one of right. them is, is uh, you, know, uh, you know, you could use something, you know, like slow poison in their case might be uh, 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 temporal status or feign death. But, what, you know, this is where you can get into, like, saying things like, you know, okay, well, you want to do a uh, raise dead. Well, magic users don't do raise dead. That's something kind of beyond their purview. Right. But maybe if you happen to – this was your best friend and you and he died and your quest is to seek out the, the nest of a phoenix. And right. if you can pluck from it a feather, you'll be able to concoct a brew that will reincarnate him. So exactly now, what I was powerful thinking. spells are not just something that you say, well, I made a level, I want that spell. No. Powerful mm-hmm. spells should be like questing for a powerful item. And that was exactly what I was thinking, is the, the, the spell components that you might use, special ones, that might have a whole, like, sidetrack adventure quest going on, on the, off the whole campaign. It could be even integral to the whole campaign. Well, yeah, like, actually, yeah. I mean, look at look look at my original beholder example. A beholder is not a monster that you take for granted at all. Yeah. Can that I have your integral... eye, please? So, yeah, totally. Well, you know, when I was in college, uh, I played uh, probably my highest level character that I ever actually ran straight through, uh, and uh, he was a magic user because I've always been partial to magic users. Uh, Araman was his name and uh, he wanted to become he became a complete megalomaniac and he wanted to become a god at one point I think near the end of our campaign uh, and he, he he knew the spell to do this uh, he was mm-hmm. going to do it via the radiance we were playing in the, in the gazetteer worlds 
Uh, and one of the things, but the DM said, "Okay, fine. You can, you can, you can ascend to godhood." Is you know, assuming that you get this spell all made and everything. Of course, mm-hmm. each component was an adventure, and what he did was he paid all the other characters worked for him he essentially paid them and and the the campaign was of course he didn't tell them what he needed everything for but uh the idea was they had to go out to different areas to get each component for this spell i think they needed the skull of a lich uh so they went lich hunting (laughs) and (laughs) there you go but it made for an interesting campaign because you don't take spells for granted when you have to work to get the components Right, it was I like think- that one. It was like the one show that we talked about, like that whole article of for about when we were talking about liches, the blueprint for a lich. That that article, kind of mm-hmm. almost like the same thing. How to become a lich? You know, these whole things take whole quests. You know, if you're looking for special spell components, it could be a whole quest. Yeah, because you're not going to go into even Greyhawk. Uh, you're not going to go to your local apothecary and say, "Hey, I need the skull of a lich." Oh, yeah, oh, I got that on the back. shelf in the back. Oh, yeah. I think I got yeah. some yeah. back there. <laughs> yeah, I got several in stock. It's not like walking in the Home Depot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is another I'll way, and I'll stress this. <laughs> well, I was going to say this is another way at high levels that the DM can rein in his uh, ultra-powerful magic user, keeping things more level mm-hmm. with the rest of the party, is that he can say, uh, you know, well, I'm going to... I'm going to cast uh, Identify. Well, at lower levels, you could do this. Uh, well, what I call mid-levels. Uh, you could. I had a DM actually do this to me. I said, well, I'm going to cast Identify on it. And uh, he whipped around, and he said, you got a 100 uh, gold piece pearl? And I said, no. Duh, duh. You're not casting Identify. Because <laughs> you need that. And you're so, like, damn it, damn it, damn it. Exactly. <laughs> and now when you start to find treasure, it takes on a whole new meaning. Now the, mm-hmm. now the magic is running forward. Say, Are there any pearls? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, pearls around here? they got to be at least 100 gold. <laughs> <laughs> and it can get more interesting that way, you know? I mean, but it's a great way to rein them in because you can say, you know, hey, you want to cast Wish? No problem. You got the spell memorized? Great. You got the components? Oh, you don't? Oh, <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> Thanks for playing. <laughs> we have some nice parting gifts for you. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I I, I totally agree. I, I, I love the components are probably the most underused element uh, in a game. And, mm-hmm. and I understand it at low levels. I mean, magic users have a hard enough at low levels. Besides. As it is, yeah grilling them for the components you know but then again i always assume that low level you know first through third level spells are probably fairly common the components yeah. uh but as they get up into fifth level six level spells they're not common anymore no and they're you're talking powerful big they, powerful mojo yeah. when, they need to keep an eye out they need to keep an eye out when yeah. when a component turns up they need to be quick to grab it yeah you got and it. just because they have the component to cast a spell well, do they have the components to cast it twice? Uh-huh. You know, I, you, you, well, I did get a hundred gold piece pearl. Really? Well, it got used up the last time. You, do you have two? No. <laughs> oh. oh, sorry, <laughs> missed it by that much. Yes. 
So yeah, I, I I agree. I like components as for, from a high level, mid to high level standpoint. Yeah. I like. Components. It might yeah, it might take a little more work on the DM, but if you uh, plan it out and you look at just look through the monster manual and say okay, maybe this from this maybe this part from this monster could be used to as a spell component. In lieu of the original ones, that could enhance it either range or duration, or or effect. So, one of those things you could do. Yeah, totally. Oh, and by the way, uh, uh, what you were saying, Nick, about you know certain components may enhance, or I, I believe it was you, Nick. Uh, it might have been Matt, yeah. but with saying certain components make add to the potency, right? Well, here we go. On identify spell, if you use a luck stone, a powdered luck stone. Uh, and add that to the infusion, you get a 25 percentile increase. There you go. Yeah. That's ah. uh, kind of neat. Yeah. So there you go. It's in the rules. I mean, you have precedent. So That's you, right. Thank you. you. I've been yeah. vindicated. You have been vindicated. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'd say there's you could do it the cheap way or you could do it the expensive way. It's up to you. That's all I got to say. <laughs> all right. And with that, I think we're going to go and head into the treasure's chest. You have opened the treasure chest. You may choose an item. And now in the treasure's chest, we're going to talk about a couple spells we mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, at the it, two opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to levels, one a first level and one a ninth level. The first one. Which one were you going to talk about first? Let's start with the level one because this spell is like the foundation, kind of, to all yeah, other. Chronological yeah. order. I like yes, it. Yes. And that would be the right spell. This is, what is the right spell? Yes. What is the wrong? That's the spell that I was wrong about last week. Yes. <laughs> but we're going to write that wrong right now when we talk about the right spell. Actually, yes, what the right are. spell does is you get to make a statement and then you get to cast it. It makes you automatically your statement truth. Ooh, yes. it's Very like nice. a first level wish spell. Yes. Oh, it's the oh, win any argument spell. <laughs> no. oh, well, my <laughs> wife uses that all the time. <laughs> yes. Uh oh. Well, Someone's written it must out. be true. Someone's sleeping on the camera. Okay. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yes, the right spell lets a spellcaster uh, actually inscribe a spell into their spell book they normally wouldn't be uh, able to understand, be it due to their intelligence was low. Or if they're just not at the right level to even know that spell. So or it, what about if it's just not a spell that they have? Like they say, uh, say you know five of the second level spells, but this isn't one of those five. It actually says, by the, the description of this is, by the means of this spell, a magic user might be able to inscribe a spell he or she cannot understand at the time due to level or lack of insufficient intelligence. So well, I guess not having a spell at first level might be due to lack of intelligence. Yeah, I would say so. I would allow them if they didn't have the spell already. I mean, I, I would say, okay, well, because this is this is tying in. This is why right is is an essential one of the three essential uh, cornerstone spells of any magic user. Yeah. Is one of the ways you increase your spell book is by coming across spells, and if it's a spell you don't know. Then you use right so that you can put it in your chicken scratch over time. It's going to take time to do it, 
It's not something you're going to do overnight, more than likely. But, you know, in my games, that's how Mad Skeezers really increase their spells because I play a low magic campaign. Uh, so I don't generally just let players go to town and buy spells. Uh, they're just too rare for that. They have to come across them in most cases, especially anything out of Unearthed Arcana. You'll never find that uh, for sale in my game. That is exactly what it says it is. It's Unearthed Arcana. Uh, so it could be the same level as them, but it's it's just not a spell that they have currently in their spellbook, so they wouldn't comprehend it. They'd have to use a right to get it into their spellbook. Right. But wouldn't read magic... Yeah, but how's that? Read Magic's not going to put it in their spellbook, though. True, but Read Magic would let them comprehend to know what it was. But so you're saying you use right to just transfer magical energy, into right? The I'm saying, hey, I don't know Fireball, although I'm the right level to cast it. Mm-hmm. It's not a spell I've ever learned. Okay. Oh wait, here's a a scroll, a Fireball scroll. What I'll do is I'll cast right because I don't know this spell, and it's going to take me time to research it. But in the meantime, I can at least get it in my book. Okay. How would you know it was a scroll fireball if you didn't learn it or if you never learned it? That is well, a, that's where, where Read I'd Magic say, first, perhaps? Read Magic gives you the, the, the basic skim, right? Right. You but, cast Read Magic, but I'm not going to let them know that spell until they've spent the right. required hours yeah. of studying it before. Read, so they can put it in their book. doesn't mean they're going to be able to cast it right away. Yeah. And once they actually the cast the right to use a spell like in the case of DM Chad, he's using it for any spell they don't currently know. Mm-hmm. It's just not as simple as I cast a spell now I write it. No, right. they yeah, actually no, have to can't make do that. No, and it could be pretty darn dangerous. Yeah, because that. you have to make a saving throw versus magic to attempt to write any spell. You do get a, a bonus if it's only up to a level greater than you. But then you get minus one if it's three levels or higher on up. And if you fail this throw, you take 1d4 damage. So if you're a first level magic user. every level of the spell. Yes. Right. And this counts into why it's also hard to find somebody else who will do it for you because they're taking Uh, a risk. Right. Yep. Fortunately for the magic user, you're not going to die from trying to write in your spell book. It'll only knock you unconscious for a number of turns. So so if you take 1d4 damage, if you take 3 damage, you're out for 3 turns. That's quite a while to be unconscious. Yeah. And and it can only be healed at a rate of 1 to 4 points per day because it's like psychic damage to your body. It's not actually like physical wounds, so it's not like your spellbook explodes and you you suffer physical damage. Actually, I think of it like physical damage. They're taking physical, magical energy damage from the spell that pretty much backfired from from yeah. the right spell. Right. But it, I like the idea that it, it 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 kind of a combo, I guess you would say. I like what both of you guys actually have said, but I, I probably look at it as a backlash. Right. Of, yeah. uh, both both. I, th- I think it, it leaves the uh, the, ca- the person attempting it in a daze mm-hmm. from the mental strain uh, as yeah. well as their body is, is physically, yeah. uh, you know, uh, put through the ringer by the actual energy backlash of trying to do it. Yeah, it's a power surge of magical yeah, energy. Yeah, like feedback. Yeah. I almost think of it like you're, 
you're trying to it's like trying to transfer hazardous volatile material from one area to another if you make a mistake yep. <laughs> and that's another reason why you probably when you're doing this you may not want to be doing this while you're on an adventure because again if you're in some subterranean hole or some some uh you know like really cold freezing tundra at night you know and the winds whipping and everything or or what have you you know but you're probably going to be if you are doing it in most cases i've seen parties tend to rest at night or Mm -hmm. or or if they're underground it doesn't matter it's always dark uh so you got like this one little candle you know, especially if you're outside, the candle yeah. wind whips by and blows out your candle in the middle of writing. Uh, you know, basically, these are not optimum conditions no. for for safely doing a right spell. Right, and it t- yeah, especially considering if you're out in the field, it takes an hour per level to transcribe. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be out of action for a while if you stumble across like. A low-level magic user spellbook who has like three or four spells you don't know that are first and second level, you're done for a few days as you write all of these spells. Pretty much. Oh yeah, yeah. So definitely. And that's why you do those on your downtime. Yeah, and when you do transcribe these spells, you have to have a fine ink composed of rare substances with a minimum cost of two hundred gold per bottle. There's your spell component, folks. <laughs> yep, and that's at a first-level spell, 200 gold. How many yep. magic users at, that are just starting out in their adventuring days are actually even going to be able to afford that vial of ink? That's why they go into the dungeon and risk their lives. Yep. yep. Or, this is why your magic <laughs> user is going down into the dungeons. Magic users, by their, I think most magic users... Uh, are are in a, they're kind of a, a they're they're a scholarly lot, but I I don't know how much of an outdoorsman type they are. <laughs> right. That's why they go in the dungeons and not into the woods. Or that's exactly. why they run a nursery and cast sleep on babies. Mm-hmm. This, yeah, <laughs> this is why they live in the cities. And if if they you know under optimal situation, they'd rather inherit enough money to just sit there and do studies inside their ivory tower, where they could buy whatever they need or hire somebody to get it. But life don't work like that, so they actually no. have to go out and get their robes a little dirty every now and then. Right. <laughs> and just imagine if, as you're adventuring, you fall down like maybe a five ten foot pit. You better hope that vial of ink didn't break. Good point. Yes. Good point. All of a sudden yep. you get up. Oh, I didn't take any damage from that fall. You made your save, but your ink vial didn't. And now you see a nice splotch in your backpack. Yeah, or worse yet, a nice big splotch in your spell book. Yes. Uh-oh. Ooh, don't carry them in the same bag. Lesson learned today. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I was just Again, looking at Chad. Maybe you can help me with this for a second uh-huh. here. Oriental Adventures has no right spell. Because in Oriental Adventures, they don't use spell books per se. Yeah, they have scrolls, but... They have scrolls, but even their scrolls are a little bit different. They're generally these little thin pieces of wood that are strung together, uh, and they actually roll up. Uh, because in the in the Asian, uh, in Japanese and Chinese... Uh, it tends to be uh, a lot of the writing, the old style writing, tended to be uh, from the top down. Uh, I w- I'm wondering, reading the description, because when I was looking up uh, 
to see if they had it as well. They said they, they practice calligraphy, which is a standard old form of writing. Now, is everything right. standard in the Orient? Well, and, and obviously this again right. gets into one of the biggest criticisms of the Oriental Adventures, which is that they tried to put an umbrella across all of Asia. You know, uh, it, it really kind of gets down to the culture you're playing. And, and I know I talked a lot about culture in the last one, but that, to answer your question, this is one of those things where you have to look at it from either uh, either an analog of, of a particular area uh, or you're doing something completely on your own. But if you're doing it completely on your own, you still have to come up with a with a, you know, a standard format on how things are done in your world. Uh, so it's hard to say, you know, it depends if you were using an analog, it depends on what are you talking about? Like Shaolong? Or are you talking about Kuzakura? You know, they're, they're very different, uh, standards in these different countries on how they do things. Uh, now I'd have to look up in the Oriental adventures, but I believe, uh, I mean, I'm sure they must have some sort of an equivalent to a right spell. Uh, but I have not looked that up. Now, that's a good question. Earlier before the show, and then that reminded me when we were talking about rights, but I looked through it again. I didn't see anything. Hmm. That's a very good question. Uh, I'm actually looking it up right now. Because they said the calligraphy that they learned, so I was thinking maybe, like you said, they umbrella it under everybody has the same form of writing spells and languages there. Well, no, I know they don't do that. Because uh, you can know the language of Shaolong. You can know the language of Kozakura. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you read into the character box set, uh, they go into that quite a bit, actually, yeah. on different languages. Uh, so if you're from Shaolong, you're not speaking the same language as somebody who's from Wa or Kozakura or Malatra. Excuse me. Uh, but I am looking that up, what you were just saying on the right spell because that is there it is okay there's the book i was looking for because that's not something i've really ever thought of and it's a good question because yeah page 73 talks about the wujin spells and it talks about how they practice writing and calligraphy blah blah, blah magical work but it doesn't really say anything other than that <laughs> well they would want to learn calligraphy just because they're an educated class uh, and, and calligraphy is basically to know cal calligraphy is to be is to is is part of being scholarly knowledgeable in their society. Uh, not to mention the fact that uh, I love this in the movie Hero. Uh, they 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 play up the whole you know this one master swordsman uh, <laughs> is so a master calligraphy expert. Mm -hmm. yeah. He equates swing the, the way you swing a sword with the way you wield a brush. You know, and, and that's really neat. Uh, but Burn barring up. the fact, if I can't find this, then I would have to say this would be either you just simply import the spell right uh, from a regular AD&D or you house rule this uh, to a way that suits your campaign. Hmm. Uh, do, do, do. But you know, I'll look this up, and maybe by the next show, I'll have an answer for okay. you. Okay. Okay. 
So that's the right spell. Yes. So th- So what's the other one on the opposite side of the coin? Yes, it would probably be the one of the more potentially game-breaking spells in the game and I would potentially kind of, pot- is game-breaking. Let's, I I, I equate it to the deck of many things of spells. Yeah. It is deck of many things. Yes. It is the wish spell. Wish. Yes. The quintessential spell every magic user itches to learn. Yeah, and every time I hear too about afraid spell, to cast. I think about that Dragon Mirth um, cartoon where it said, "Imagine when I I I had, I had a wish spell and I wished for a million bucks." And what's the picture of them? There's a, literally a million bucks there. A million got a deer. Heard of deer around him. <laughs> heard of deer around him. So, careful how you word that spell. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's a great spell. But yeah, continue on, man. Yes, this it's used to alter reality with respects to like hit points and bringing dead characters alive. You know, standard stuff covered by other spells without like the saving throws and whatnot. But but the thing with this spell is one, you're not going to be able to get other magic users to cast it for you because one, their strength will drop. Minus three. So no. you have a... Yeah, you, lo- you got a, three off your strength. Right. So you got a limited amount of wishes in you. So, mm-hmm. so considering most magic users are squishy, if you are able to cast three to four wish spells in your lifetime, you've cast a lot. And after you cast this spell, it requires two to eight days of bed rest because of the stress that it places upon your body and mind. Oh. So, yeah, you cast the Wisp spell, you're done. This is the mm-hmm. salvo to, like, save the world. But regardless of what is wished for, the exact terminology of the Wisp spell is likely to be carried. This is where mm-hmm. DMs get to have some fun and players will spend hours on end <laughs> debating whether or not they should throw in an and or is. Yes. And uh-huh. should they say the end at the end? Yes, as you can. I find it interesting. That. I find it interesting though that the wish spell, the component, is completely verbal. No somatic or material components. No. Yeah, completely yeah. verbal. I think if, they figure probably that that's dangerous enough with this. <laughs> right. Because hey, what, would, what would you think a component for a wish spell would be? A birthday candle? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> The birthday candle of a demigod. Actually, <laughs> the toenail of a genie. <laughs> no, that would be really cool because a component, a birthday candle from a birthday that just passed. So your magic user has to run around finding someone that had a birthday and find well, a, a candle that was blown out. But I would say not at just any birthday candle. It had to be like a birthday candle of like a, a, a king or something like no, that. No, no, no. Any birthday candle. It's it's tough enough to figure out whose birthday it is back then anyway, so... Right. The toenails of a genie. Oh. They have to catch a shooting star. Yeah. Uh-huh. I got it! I got it! <laughs> Ow! <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I think with the way it is already set, you know, they, they uh, I've, I've heard it said, you know, it's the spell that every magic user wants, but is too afraid to cast uh, mm-hmm. because right. of the way it can be done. Yeah. Uh, and this gets into, you know, I think I'd mentioned this on a prior episode. I, I, I'm a strong believer that, that, and, and I run a low magic campaign. I say that up front. So, uh, you know, it's, it's players or characters 
had probably even a high level they probably never really run across a genuine wish and when it's time to cast it you know i i always ask the player to please try not to metagame their wording yeah mm. that that exactly right i was just thinking it's like it's a it's a hard there's a there is a line that has to be drawn in between what you could do with the wish and where it goes into a meta gaming area, you know, now, I'm willing to work with them on this, you know, cause they might say, well, great. If I don't meta game the, the wording, then you're really going to screw me up because you're asking me to intentionally say it in a way that it can get screwed up. Right. And to which I usually say, okay, you know, this is us talking out of character, but I will be more lenient. If, if I think you're literally trying to lead, you know, to, to, be more clever than I am by totally meta gaming the the phrasing uh, in, into a fashion where I literally can't screw up your wish. Then I'm really going to try to screw up your wish. I, <laughs> if, if, but if you are, if you play it fair, if you say, you know, this is the way I got to phrase it because it's the way my character would, you know, I, then I'm more willing to say, let's treat this in a more traditional aspect. Then I'm not going to, I'm not going to, go out of my way to screw up your wish so much if 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 i think you're playing it straight the way your character would really say it then i i'll say this you have as much right chance of getting it right if you play it straight than you do as you do if you try to get really clever and metaphrase it mm -hmm. right you're not going to get any bonus by metaphrasing it in other words all right Right. Yeah, this is the spell where it's best to work with your players, not against them. If you yeah. if you end up with an adversarial relationship, if just your campaign in general is DM versus players, your players would be wise to never cast this spell. Because mm -hmm. this is the equivalent of like a nuclear bomb in magic yeah. using and pretty much it's just mutually assured destruction. And it could cause some serious arguments within the party too. Yeah. I mean, about oh, how yeah. to word the spell. I mean, I I can think of a couple of times where they wish spells come across, they've come across a wish spell, either you know, or you know, ring of three wish wishes or something like that. A wish has come up in the game, and I don't. Some arguments have come up on how to word the wish and. Some people, you know, they get kind of they they get a little agitated, you know. <laughs> so what if a exactly. uses one of those wishes that Nick had given him from his wish of rings or whatever, and says, "I wish to be able to transcribe and write any." Well, to then never mind. I wish to transcribe any spell into my spellbook without complication. Hmm. I would say, uh, let's see here. I would probably say, sure, yeah. you can transcribe one spell of your choice without complication because it's any, yeah. not all. So, and then this it, isn't it, me trying to screw with the player. Right. This is literally, yeah. that's a pretty powerful thing. And since he said any spell, that includes cleric spells, druid spells, any spell. So right. that's now, the trade-off. Really you get one, but it, it can be, be one. any spell in the book. All right, let's say he clarifies it a little bit more because you said, well, let's just maybe you're being fair. Let's clarify it a little bit. And he says, all right, I'd like to transcribe any magic. Well, let's say, how about he says, I'd like to transcribe all magic user spells. 
into my spell book without complication. Well, then at that point, he immediately starts transcribing every spell, and he isn't doing anything for the next how many years? That's exactly what I was thinking. He's he no problem. I let him do it, but he I ask him for his character sheet, and then he looks at me stunned and says, "What?" And I say, "Well, you're in transcribing every spell. That's going to take you the rest of your life." Yeah, right. You start writing now, <laughs> and you don't stop. Yeah. No one in can fact, stop your character you. Character gets an added perk out of this. He's immortal. He's immortal. <laughs> But he or spends his entire life writing. Purposes. You're in temporal exactly. stasis, copying these spells until he's done. Uh, so he what's out? I said even further is use the DM chat. Like, oh, well, I'm going to be fair. That's going to really screw your character. Rethink that. And you give him another chance yet again. And he says, well, okay, what happens if I say it like this? And I say, any time that my character attempts to, to transcribe a magic user spell into his spell book, it would go out, would go without complication. Hmm. Anytime. So no matter if it's the first time, the last time, the third time, no matter any time he tries to do it. I'd probably give it to him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think sure. it's overpowered. No. 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 He gets it. And he would even be, I would even, the way it was worded, you can transcribe tons of spells, including illusionist, including cleric, including druidic. You get them all. You can write them. Doesn't mean you can cast them. Well, he right. just. Now, I would ask him to phrase it in a way his character would. You know, I'd I'd say, yeah, you know, I'd give it to him, but I'd say, can you please phrase that as? Yeah, your character? if it was phrased in that way, I get the gist of it. So yeah, I would be cool uh, with that. I think that was an in character, pretty much in character. Well, magic. he said, okay, I want my magic user to. Well, your character is not going right. to say that. I would say I would like the. Oh. I, I wish I could transcribe any spell into my book without any, uh, without without encountering any obstacle to the action. What if the magic is being played by the rock? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Then you're out of luck. Well, (laughs) then at that point, if he he starts talking in the third person, everyone with that name in the world now has that ability. Uh, (laughs) Man, it's just too mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'll tell you what, the... The spell. worst thing I uh, encounter, I as a player ever encountered with a wisp spell, and I don't know that it was necessarily bad. It was actually kind of cool. It was just totally unexpected uh, because we, our DM was good. He wasn't trying to mess us up. He just was trying to show us how the wording can affect, you know, reality uh, and how powerful his spell is. And and this was my same magic user who tried to become a god. Uh, prior to trying that, he he got a he cast a wish and he said, "I wish, I uh, I wish to be the most powerful wizard in the world." And the DM said, "All right, stand up and come over with me to the other room." And I did. And he goes, "All right, you wake up and you feel a little different." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Oh, okay." And you don't recognize where you are, but it's a really nice room. And then I said, okay, well, I get up and look around. He goes, well, you look in the mirror, but you don't see you. You see an entirely foreign face in front of you. Uh, And what had happened was I became the most – I changed bodies with him, actually. Uh, I became – you know who Drakenfell is in in the Gazetteers? Uh, I think it's like – what is his name? Baron von Drakenfell? Uh, he's basically the high dr- uh, dr- uh, draconist or high dracology. Yeah, he uh, he he's in this guy's world at least. He is the most powerful magic user in the world, and I became him. And he woke up in my character's <laughs> body. 
my character was the high elementalist oh, no. in the realm. So my uh, eventually we changed back again to each other. But when we did, uh-huh. I retained all his spells and he retained all of, all of Araman's spells. So he got something out of the deal too. Uh, but it was interesting. It wasn't what I expected, but I wouldn't say it was bad. And that's another way you can approach wishes. You don't have yeah. to say, you know, it doesn't always have to be something that's bad for the player if they misphrase it. It should. But I love the idea of just something unexpected. It doesn't yeah. have to always be the, as Matt would know, the Montreal screw job. Right. Right. <laughs> they could get something. They could get an totally unexpected perk out of their wish. Right. Yep. But well, as I, long as it leaves them with this, oh, my gosh, I never even thought of that. Look, I love that look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, in my last campaign that I had, I had a player that was very egotistical with his magic user. And uh, so he had a wish, and he wished that he would get all the fame that he deserves. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I basically, every adventure, I kicked it up a notch that people were building statues for him. People, when they would see him and hear his name, they would bow to him. And so it got to the point that he got so sick of it that he was like, oh, enough of this already. I could see he was his the player himself. I could see he was getting really annoyed. And I'm like, hey, you wished for this. Yep. Mm-hmm. He has ye old paparazzi following him I around. Would e- and I would even put a twist on this and, and then say maybe the gods might not be too happy. He's like a mere mortal getting this much attention. He was starting mm-hmm. to get like temples built in his name. And they were- oh, no. Yeah, that could definitely have a pantheon angry. Oh, yeah, and we, we've been bled it over yeah. to the third game. So they're saying that this certain character was now worshipped by other characters in another campaign. <laughs> That's how much or it bled over. To you could flip that around, though, too. You could say, you know what? You are so famous, they build temples and tell stories of you, and the gods themselves have come down and asked you to ascend to their ranks. Please give me your character sheet. You're a demigod now, but you're done. (laughs) What topped this all off was another player in the group who was annoyed at the fact that this character, before he made this wish, secretly made a wish that said, I wish he gets everything that he deserves. So I had his fame on top of whatever lesson he was supposed to learn. So... It became really bad at one point. Oh, wow. All right, cool. Yeah, so, yeah, be careful of what you wish for. You just might get it. Dun, dun, dun. That's going to wrap up the show this week. Yeah. And okay. I'll just point out, uh, if you haven't had a chance to or don't know about End Magazine, it's a great little magazine about first edition Dungeons & Dragons published by the End Group, which is in our forums, osrgaming.org. You can go to End the hyphen mag.com Matt put a link to that in the show notes for everybody as well will do they do have issue 7 that just came out inner planes and uh, it has some great articles in there I would give you a couple articles they have them here they revisit the archer class they took a deep look a deeper look at saving throws uh, there's an interview with me obviously so that's why I'm pointing it out haha uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you get everything you deserve you deserve uh-huh. yeah but they uh, have the great Great magazine if you just want to read about AD&D 1st Edition. They have new – every issue, they have new spells, new ways to use things. They have ecologies of different monsters. They make up monsters. Uh, they talk about uh, – they have one-page dungeons in there. There are many adventures. They have uh, different artists in there doing special things. Uh, let's see how it's in here. And this deeper look at um, – let's see. Oh, something you might like, Chad. Wow. Uh, what you want to what? Adventuring in the elemental planes. So they talk about the oh, elemental Oh, that'd be cool. 
Fun. There seven pages about that, so you might want to take a little read at issue number seven. Which mm, is I think I will. We have to get these folks back on the show and talk to them again and do a comparison versus what we do, issue one, I think, a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because they have come a long way since issue one. Now, it's, compared to issue one, which was a great magazine at the time, this one almost, I could say if they printed it, it would look like a professional magazine. I'm, you got nice. me, my interest peaked. I'm going to go take a look at it. Yeah, if you're not, if you if you never heard of them or not, go there now. I mean, I demand you download it. Tell me one more time. What was the link? And now, now, now. <laughs> yeah, a n d hyphen m a g dot com. Okay, and mag dot com. Okay, and hyphen mag dot com. Don't forget the hyphen. A n d hyphen mag. Okay, end magazine. Go there, do it for the children. <laughs> Won't somebody please think of the children? Yes. Which children? Oh. Nick's children. Nah, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> if not anything else, think about the animals out there and the you know, the kill shelters. And go think out about and... the beholders and the bullies and the cockatrices out there. You too can adopt a kobold right now. <laughs> you too. Adopt the kobold. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> And if you do, send them our way. We need somebody to work the holiday shift. Yes. <laughs> no, Chad, you're, you're working the holiday shift. Sorry, buddy. We already, we already switched the schedule, dude. Sorry. That's it. You get a, you get a random, you get a wandering monster. <laughs> Joy. That's what happens when you get a, uh, 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 what was it we said? Uh, the, uh, cu- the gelatinous cube. <laughs> the quicker picker upper. <laughs> Mr. Clean. So, uh, anyway. Keep it original, keep it old school. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. The Roll for Initiative podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. You can visit us at rfipodcast.com or contact us on our forums at osrgaming.org or even by calling us at 570-865-4210. This podcast is produced for entertainment purposes only. All other uses are prohibited. And remember, if your magic missile spell doesn't automatically hit, you're playing the wrong edition. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Roll for Initiative.